0: Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded on August 17th, 2017 at 4.30pm GMT. So if there have been any significant events which took place in the time after recording, we are obviously unable to cover them. If you want to find out about upcoming podcasts or anything else we do here at the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash teorc. There you can find out information about our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, our Terrorism and Extremism book series with I.B. Taurus, and so much more. Also, for the most up-to-date information, be sure to follow us on Twitter at teorcuel and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. Okay, so now time for today's guest. It's my great privilege and honor to welcome uh, Professor Erica Chenoweth onto today's uh, podcast. Erica is an internationally recognized authority on political violence and its alternatives. She is Professor and Associate Dean for Research at the Joseph Corbold School of International Relations at the University of Denver and Associate Senior, senior Researcher at the Peace Research Institute of Oslo. In 2013, Foreign Policy magazine ranked her among the top 100 global thinkers. She also won the 2014 Karl Deutscher Award, given annually by the International Studies Association to the scholar under 40 who has made the most significant impact on the field of international politics or peace research. She holds a PhD and an MA in Political Science from the University of Colorado and a BA in Political Science in German from the University of Dayton. Eric is the co-author with Maria Stephan of Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict. This book earned them the 2013 Graumeier Award for Ideas Improving World Order, which is presented annually in recognition of outstanding proposals for creating a more just and peaceful world. The book also won the 2012 Woodrow Wilson Foundation Award, given annually by the American Political Science Association, in recognition of the best book on government, politics, or international affairs published in the U.S. during the previous calendar year. It's a great honor and privilege to welcome her on board the pod. So Erica, welcome on board and thanks for for joining us today. Thank you so much, John. First of all, the way I start each of these interviews is, I want to, to find out how did you first become involved in this area of research?
1: Well, uh, I have been interested in political violence and alternatives to political violence since I was a teenager and was watching, uh, the wars in the Balkans. And my mother had bought me Zlata's diary, which is the diary of Zlata Filipovic, a Bosnian Serb girl who had been, uh, chronicling her experience as a 12 and 13 year old, um, during the siege of Sarajevo. And I was exactly the same age as Zlata and, um, and was very moved by, you know, what a teenager's experience would be like living in this context. And so um, even from a pretty young age, I knew that I wanted to get into um, studying and trying to find solutions and alternatives um, to to violence in its form, in all of its forms, actually. And um, when I went to college, I knew immediately that I was going to uh, major in international relations and try to uh, pursue some kind of professional path that would put me in a position to do that. Um, And when I went to graduate school, I sort of had the choice of whether I was going to try to pursue a more um, practical or diplomatic type of career or whether I was going to pursue a more uh, scholarly career. And so I actually took two fields. The first one being international relations and the second one being public policy just to kind of maintain some options mm-hmm. um, and professional opportunities after I got my PhD and, and um, ultimately realized that I, I quite liked um, engaging in research and knowledge discovery and uh, I quite liked writing about uh, the findings and, and analyzing um, data and kind of engaging in rich intellectual conversations. And so it seemed to me that the academic career path, at least as a start, would be um, the best fit for me. And um, of course, in the middle of all of this, uh, terrorism was becoming a much more um, popular topic in different academic circles, primarily because of the massive focus and and interest in the topic that occurred after 9-11. so, um, so I was part of a kind of wave of researchers that got scooped up into uh, the National Consortium for the Study of Research in—I'm uh, sorry—the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, or START, which was housed at the University of Maryland as uh, one of the Department of Homeland Security's Centers of Excellence, um, and that happened right around the time I was beginning my dissertation research, and so I—I I was able to get a. A pre-doctoral fellowship and a post-doctoral fellowship from start, um, and then became a lead investigator for them on uh, research on uh, different options of effective counterterrorism with Laura Dugan. So um, that's really kind of how I started uh, getting involved in terrorism research as such, um, but my much broader interest has been um, in kind of understanding why different groups use violence to try to achieve their political aims. Um, what are the effects of the choice to use violence on, um, kind of broader social outcomes and also the success or failure of these groups? And then what are effective alternatives to violence? Um, so, you know, most of my research kind of points in that same direction. Um, and my interests are in reducing violence wherever it's unnecessary.
0: And have you, have you recently gone gone back back and and looked at Zalata's diary again?
1: You know, I haven't looked at it in a while. Um, it's funny, when I was at Harvard doing postdocs, Latte actually came through there because she has a new book out called Stolen... Well, at the time, it was a new book called Stolen Voices, um, The Diaries of Children um, from World War I through Iraq. And her book was basically an anthology where she was able to trace all of the major wars, the major international wars... Um, in the 20th century, and then through the Iraq War, and she was able to find the diary of a child on either side of the conflict, of two sides of conflicts. Um, so for example, in World War One, there was a diary of a German um, youth, and there was a diary of a French youth. And she came to Harvard to present um, this book and kind of do a talk about it, and uh, there were very few people there. <laughs> um, and I was really surprised, but it was a delight, because I got to actually talk with her um, one-on-one, and explained to her that my primary motivation for um, for doing what I do now was, was reading her book as a child. And she said something so interesting to me um, in response. She said that, you know, when she had been airlifted out of Sarajevo, uh, which she was because of the recognition that her diary had received, um, and she wound up in Paris as a 13 or 14-year-old girl who Um, had survived the war, but whose whose friends, many of them, had not survived, um, whose neighbors had been killed, um, uh, and was sort of living with this survival guilt, in a way. Um, She also uh, had a really tough depression, because there were critics, like literary critics, who panned her book. Um, Initially, some people had said, this is like the Anne Frank of Sarajevo, but then different critics had said, no, she isn't. First of all, her writing is much less sophisticated than Anne Frank's. And secondly, she survived, so it's not nearly as interesting a story.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> and so as a teenager in a in a foreign place, um, having been totally dislocated and traumatized by this this um war, um she she was living with those with all with all of that. And she said that what is amazing now is that she's been kind of a special rapporteur to the UN, she's a filmmaker, she's a writer. And um, she has so many people our age come up to her and say, I read your diary when I was a kid, and now I'm working in UN peacekeeping, and now I'm working in NGOs dedicated to sexual, reducing sexual violence in conflict. And now I'm doing, you know, and, and people our age who actually were moved as children. Mm, that's amazing. When we read her book and are now, and are now grown up and, and all kind of motivated uh, in a similar direction. So it was a pretty cool full circle experience
0: that's brilliant that's it it's it's an amazing story it's it's a great introduction into into this area that we that we research and that's obviously the the first book the first bit of writing to inspire you but one of the things that i've asked you and i've asked all our guests to do is to put forward as well uh the research that has influenced your career and what was the first piece of research that uh that you'd like to discuss that is that has influenced uh your your career
1: Well, one of the ones I mentioned to you is Max Abrams' article, Why Terrorism Does Not Work. And I think that this article really influenced me, again, at a time when I was kind of wrapping up my own dissertation and trying to figure out, you know, um, this dialogue that was going on between Robert Pape and a number of other scholars, um, Mia Bloom and others at the time, about um, the effectiveness or what he called the strategic logic of suicide terrorism. And suicide terrorism itself had, you know, become its own kind of category of inquiry because it was capturing so many scholars' imaginations as some kind of unique tactical innovation that was fairly um, novel for our time in terms of the sort of um, the volume and concentration of it in particular conflict settings. So, so this this conversation was going on, and and by and large, I think that it had started to become kind of popular wisdom or or conventional in um, academic scholarship to really push back on this notion that terrorists were crazy fanatics, that the violence was senseless, that the violence was wanton. And Pape had written this article saying, even suicide terrorism, which looks like the most senseless and wanton form, um, is highly strategic um, in the way that it's used. And one of the ways that we can gauge its strategic effectiveness is by the fact that it's extremely successful. In eliciting uh, the outcomes that the that the the terror groups that use it are are trying to pursue, and so then this important article came out by Max Abrams, which you know basically said that that's entirely wrong. That in fact, you know, if you looked at um, cases that even Pape studied in his article, like Hamas, for example, um, that Hamas had decidedly not gotten what it wanted. Um, that actually, uh, we were refer- first. Further away from Palestinian self-determination after waves of suicide terror that began in 1993 and, and persisted through the Second Intifada, um, then than certainly they were um, at the at the height of the Oslo negotiations. And so, in a way, I'm sorry, the the Oslo Accord. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that in a way, um, you know, that really kind of challenged a lot of the direction that scholarship was moving and and starting to just assume and take for granted that terrorism is an effective tool Abrams came out and said it's incredibly ineffective it's less effective than guerrilla warfare um, and uh, other forms of kind of more conventional conflict where it's kind of militaries to militaries fighting and so forth and what um, that provoked in me um, was a, a broader question of you know we can compare different forms of violence against one another in terms of their effectiveness, but we're really leaving out a very large range of other political behaviors that actually aren't violent and that could also produce um, different political outcomes. It's the same kinds that these groups are seeking and at that time I got linked up with Maria Stefan um, and a few other people associated with the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict Um, who uh, kind of in a totally separate strand of research were evaluating um, the conditions under which nonviolent mass resistance could be an effective form of struggle. Um, And that had been, you know, a a major research avenue that was catalyzed by the work of Gene Sharp, who was inspired by Gandhi, um, and that had kind of resulted in a number of different... important um, case studies, historical case studies, and comparative case studies by people like Steven Zunas, Peter Ackerman, Jack Duvall, Kurt Schock, um, and many others who basically um, looked at nonviolent resistance almost as a functional equivalent uh, to armed struggle in many different contexts. But what hadn't been done was a real comparison between these different types of, um, of insurrection armed and unarmed um, because most people were preoccupied with trying to understand which types of armed insurrection (laughs) were most effective as opposed to which type of political opposition in general is most effective. And so um, that's what kind of motivated in a way, um, this turn to trying to evaluate the strategic logic of nonviolent resistance, um, which resulted in, in an article. And then that first book you mentioned, um, with Maria Stefan.
0: And for our listeners, how did you go about, how did yourself and Maria go about, uh, investigating this? What was, what, what were the data that you were using? Um, what way did you, uh, did you approach this question and, and these comparisons?
1: Yeah, so what we did is we, um, we collected data from 1900 to 2006. And the only reason for that end year is that's the year we met and started the work. <laughs> so there's no there's no real reason other than that arbitrary end date. Um, so uh, And we looked at every uh, mass campaign around the world in every country that was trying to seek what you would call a maximalist goal or what Max Abrams actually in his article called a maximalist goal which is trying to um, fundamentally alter the way that society is ordered, either because you're trying to overthrow the existing incumbent leader or because you're trying to create territorial independence or you're kicking out of foreign colonial power or foreign military occupation. And so um, we looked at those outcomes in particular because I was actually kind of skeptical that nonviolent resistance could be a functional equivalent. To arm struggle, and so we selected a sample of comparison for comparison that would include these hard cases, um, where actually the the goal of the campaign was quite difficult, and in many respects is the type of outcome or goal that people would associate with armed struggle. Um, so you think you think of um, overthrowing a regime, and you think of like the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution, or something, but you usually don't think about um, the bulldozer revolution, which was a nonviolent uh, uprising that overthrew Slobodan Milosevic in 2000 in Serbia or you know other cases like that so mm. so basically um we collected those data that resulted in 323 um, instances um that were primarily violent or primarily nonviolent violent uh, there's also a category called nonviolent with a violent flank because sometimes it isn't all or nothing mm. um, and nevertheless we um, then compared their outcomes and Uh, We used very strict criteria for whether the campaign succeeded or failed. We um, relied on a a metric of them having to to achieve their outcome within a year of the peak of the mobilization. Um, They had to have had a decided effect on the outcome. So like if a dictator dies in office of a heart attack, that doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, also they had to have achieved what it is they said they wanted meaning total, total overthrow of the regime, not just like you know a, a sort of um, negotiation to hold free and fair elections and then the dictator wins again or something like that. So um, ultimately, we, we reviewed these data with, with field and, and subject experts. We had the 323 cases. It turned out that I was wrong and Maria's instinct was right, that um, nonviolent resistance campaigns were succeeding more than twice as often as their violent counterparts. And then we did a, um, an analysis of that to try to explain that outcome and to show also that um, the countries in which there had been nonviolent campaigns, they were much more likely to emerge um, as democratic countries in the long run and with a much lower chance of relapse into civil war in the aftermath. So, you know, it seemed like a pretty important finding. It is definitely counterintuitive until you sort of dig into the data and you see that really the story is one about people power, mass participation which is much more likely to take place if a campaign is using nonviolent methods of struggle as opposed to, you know, forcing everybody to to elevate their level of risk and and engage in armed struggle. And the fact that the numbers are very big um, in nonviolent campaigns means that they're also able to access a lot of other political, economic, and social points of power, um, that they can then use to pull away support for the regime and build support from below. Um, so, you know, security force defections, the defections of economic elites, um, social cultural authorities, these are all really important parts of the story for how nonviolent resistance campaigns win. And. Um, Anyway that that's that's the analysis that appears in our book.
0: Yeah, and that that core point there that uh the nonviolent resistance they, re- they really benefits from domestic pressures whereas you were saying as well that the the violent uh resistances are more likely to benefit if they from external pressures. Would that be a, an accurate summation of what of what some of the
1: Yeah, I think I think that's true and and of course as you know, um, there are major risks to relying on foreign support for armed groups. Um, Foreign sponsors can be incredibly fickle. They can also be very dominating. They can also decide they don't like the group and want to kill everybody in it. Mm -hmm. Um, There are all kinds of different ways that relying on a foreign um, source of support for rebel groups can be a double-edged sword. Um, it does elevate the, their chances of success if they are able to get um, foreign support, particularly sanctuary, which can be quite critical, um, and their ability to kind of maneuver around repression um, and maintain resilience over the long haul. Um, but uh, they are generally um, much more tied to what that foreign power wants them to do. Um, and it can create a lot of difficulties within. Um, the sort of organizational structure and, and sense of legitimacy among different leaders, and so forth, whereas nonviolent resistance is very much <clears throat> more dependent—quite, quite a bit more dependent on um, local levels of support and legitimacy, which are much more sustainable and durable
0: over the long haul. And where do you see this, this kind, this research and the findings uh, today? How do you see this as um, applicable? right now in 2017 or where or what um what situations do you see its its application at the moment
1: well i think that the the broader implication is of course related to um dissident campaigns that are trying to decide what the most effective way forward for them might be and um you know we we certainly can't know um we don't have crystal balls and we can't Predict how any conflict will go, but I think it's really important and often unknown in the popular imagination that nonviolent mass resistance has been such an effective force for change, particularly progressive change, um, in in the last 117 years at least, and <clears throat> that it ought not to be discounted or underestimated in its potential to to really generate. Um, uh, even radical changes uh, around the world, and so you know, in that regard, I think that that it can have um, an effect on legitimizing voices that are calling for nonviolent struggle, as opposed to um, voices that are calling for armed struggle as the only way um, that they can achieve their outcomes. And you know, to that extent, I, I think that a lot of um, a lot of groups that are already inclined toward nonviolent resistance have found it useful to have some kind of empirical backing for their arguments that um, just gives them a bit more, I think, stamina in making those arguments against those that are calling for escalation to violence. Yeah.
0: Um, you said that you were surprised by the findings, Maria wasn't wasn't as surprised. What kind of reaction did you get from practitioners when presenting this, first of all, or from the broader public?
1: yeah I mean, not all practitioners are alike, and um, certainly where they're situated, I think has a strong impact on how they read it. Um, certainly the 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 overwhelming response from people that have been in democracy promotion work or human rights related work or um, kind of the NGO sector um, have taken the 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 results quite uh, warmly. Um, even kind of foreign service officer types or uh, civilian bureaucrats in different uh, parts of uh, the foreign policy community have thought that it was very useful. Um, the, the only, uh, even uniformed military, honestly, that uh, that have reached out to me or talked to me about the findings, they say that they're quite intuitive and they, they want to figure out ways to reduce violence um, in their work for lots of reasons. And they like this kind of strategic logic aspect of this argument. Um, the people I think that are the least uh, friendly toward the argument are civilian defense officials. Okay. <laughs> um, and you know that that's just a group of people that um, that are seem quite uninterested, frankly, in uh, um, in pursuing non- nonviolent alternatives uh, to political conflicts. <laughs> oh. uh, other than that, uh, in the general public domain, uh, there has been a, a very wide-ranging response, and a lot of it has depended a bit on where people line up in the ideological spectrum, or the, um, you know, which political party they identify with in the United States, anyway. Um, but you know, by and large, I think that the the findings surprise people, and they're curious to know more. and And um, I'm always very excited when there's somebody whose mind has been changed by the research. So. That's what I kind of look out for.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a great the the art, the initial article was excellent. The 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 book that came after was excellent as well, and actually one of. Our other interviewees has put it down as um, one of his influence, influential uh, pieces of research that influenced his career as well. It's, uh, it's something that, and that's why we do research. We do research not to just get the findings that we expect. We want to, we want to set up research in a way that we can be surprised at times that we let the, the data um, actually do the talking itself and it's a it's a it's lovely when when that can happen as well like it's um it's great and that that this that discussion of that came from the influence that max abram's uh, article why terrorism does not work had on had on your career and then the next uh piece of research that you had on your list that influenced you is one that i'm sure influenced so many people listening in today it's martha crenshaw's uh piece the causes of terrorism what was it about this research about this uh this piece that that influenced you
1: well i mean honestly everybody who wants to know anything about terrorism just has to read everything that martha crenshaw has ever written yeah, agreed, <laughs> um agreed. i mean yeah i mean the, the the thing that's so amazing about martha's work is that um as soon as you think you had a new idea about something and you want to make a a new argument about, um, you know, political violence or terrorism. Um, if you go back and reread your Martha Crenshaw basics, you're going to find out that she already kind of hinted at that idea at some point (laughs) in in her previous writing. So honestly, you know, the thing I love about Martha's work is that every sentence she writes does work and she is just, her work is just every, everything she writes advances a new idea or a new perspective or makes a, a, a really important insight that people could pursue later or that she herself pursued later. And what I love about that article um, that I mentioned to you is that it's, it's kind of a classic But it also lays out so many different potential avenues for future research on what causes terrorism. Because she essentially lays out what are testable hypotheses about instrumental and organizational um, causes of terrorism. She talks about psychology. Um, She kind of lays out a bunch of different approaches even to how you might understand causes of terrorism. Um, she talks about the fact that there's probably no one general theory, uh, but that there are different frameworks that we can use that will have greater applicability in some places rather than others. Um, she demonstrates deep knowledge of particular cases in that article, but doesn't, you know, overwhelm you with details. Um, so, and, and the other thing is that the the references and bibliography in that article just speak to a, a much more kind of in-depth treatment of classics, that many of which I think have Been kind of lost in a lot of contemporary um terrorism research at least on the empirical side uh so i think um it's just one of those classic pieces that has to be on any syllabus and should probably be cited in any article about terrorism because whatever idea you're putting forward in your article she probably kind of clued you into (laughs) (laughs) um and that article at some point
0: yeah it's it's sort of when i read her her work as well it strikes me that this was this has been written at a time when obviously with the external situation at the time and with the academic situation there wasn't the pressure to be publishing 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 and you had time to really think about these issues and seeing a, an article like that you see the fruits of that of that uh, that thought process it's as you say every line is important and it, it can give you ideas that you thought were original of your own, but then you go back and you see that they, they, they came from her as well. It's it's I, yeah. I, you're you're you won't be surprised to say to hear that you weren't the only one who's who's picked that as as influencing mm-hmm. their career as well. And the final yeah. the final one that you've got there is Inside Rebellion The Politics of Insurgent Organizations by Jeremy Feinstein in two thousand and eight. What was well for this wouldn't be as well known to some of our listeners as Martha or Max's article. So what mm-hmm. is it about this book um, and what mm-hmm. was it about that inf- that influenced you?
1: Yeah, so um, so this book uh, came out in I think 2008 mm-hmm. and it was, it's a book that blends political economy and security um, and it he basically makes the argument that what, what he's trying to understand is when do rebel groups abuse civilians and when don't they and he the explanation that he comes up with is that it really depends on where the rebel groups are getting their funds and supporters and if they happen to live in a resource rich area meaning there are a high number of lootable resources where they are then they tend to be highly abusive towards civilians. Um, whereas if they live in resource-poor areas, they tend to be very respectful of civilians. Okay. And the argument he, he develops around that is simply that there are basically two different types of insurgent organizations, opportunists and activists. And the opportunists are those that um, basically attract recruits that are there to get rich. To enrich themselves, or to, you know, basically play war for a while um, and get away with killing a lot of people under the kind of banner of some broader uh, legitimate cause, which they may not actually be quite faithful to. Um, whereas then there are activist insurgencies, and those are um, those are rebel organizations that actually really care about the ideology that they are pursuing, um, and they. Uh, they are in resource poor areas, meaning they have to rely on the support and cooperation of the civilian population in order to maintain um, their operations. And so they have to treat civilians nicely because they can't spend a whole bunch of their coercive potential on controlling them and getting them to kind of play nice with the insurgent group. And so um, what, what influenced me about this piece was really understanding the non-monolithic nature of different conflict settings. Because you can have these different types of organizations operating in the same country, but in a subnational context. So where, you know, there are certain parts of the country that have uh, more lootable resource endowments than others. And in those areas, we expect higher levels of violence, not because, um, not because of the um, the resources themselves, but of the type of characters that are drawn to those particular groups, and the fact that they can often have kind of a more criminal kind of element to them, um, not because of the, the, the diamonds or whatever, but because of who wants to make money off of the diamonds in the context of a war setting. So anyway... Um, I think that there are lots of reasons to contest and disagree with, with uh, this research, and a lot of people have, and a lot of people are coming up with alternative arguments for um, you know, why civilians are, um, are abused in the context of civil wars or in, in some parts of civil wars and not others, and I actually totally agree with a lot of that research too, but what really struck me about Weinstein's book was how bold his arguments were. I kind of learned how to write um, a book-length book length Project from reading his book, because um, unlike in an academic article where you sort of have to caveat everything ad infinitum and you know make sure that you've cited everything as rigorously as possible and you're you're very um, um, kind of precise about those things. Um, in his book, he just kind of boldly comes out and states his assumptions and moves forward. And it's a it's a very well written book. If if anybody wants to know how to write an academic book and how to present extremely in-depth empirical material from interviews experiments and um, field experiments and and quantitative um, data it's a great example of how to do that how to put that material together uh, in a compelling way and to just kind of boldly make an argument (laughs) Um, so so I I definitely endorse that book for anybody that wants to learn how to do that um, who's an academic Um, and otherwise I just think his his arg- his argument uh, flawed as it is is incredibly elegant and for that i um you know it was it had a profound impact on the way that I think and write
0: and even though there are there are flaws within the argument that, that's put forward, it does have that that key central message that we need to carry on into today is that like the heterogeneity of rationale of why someone would become involved like just because an organization has a specific ideology it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the rationale that's the reason why why an individual would join and it's not we can't just say the the reason for a terrorist group's existence and their their aims is is necessarily directly linked to an individual's um an individual's reason for joining and reason for staying involved or also their reason for leaving as well so it does have that even though there are flaws, though, it does have that central message that's important to take forward as well as the the way that it's written as well. Um, exactly. So they're the, the three pieces of research that, that have influenced you. And when hearing you talk about them, I can really see that while we've talked already about how Max Abrams' work influenced why civil resistance works, I can see it also having ways of influencing ter- terrorism and democracy. Another uh, piece of yours here, because it's similar to Max in this. You're you're challenging what the conventional wisdom is. You're you're challenging what's been put forward and saying, okay, let's see um, where the data is here, and let's go down into this in uh, in much more. Um, in much more nuanced fashion as well. So could you describe, or I might be wrong in saying that as well, but could you describe uh, for listeners what the the core purpose of terrorism and democracy was the, this article and what you, uh, how you approached it and what your key findings were?
1: Sure. So, so one of the big, um, policy directions out of the United States after nine 11, um, was the Bush Doctrine, which has a lot of different elements to it, of course, mm-hmm. but one of the the main tenets of it was this claim that terrorism only comes out of countries where people aren't free to express their political opinions within their country. And so basically terrorism is a product of authoritarian regimes, and um, some authoritarian regimes are more Prone to terrorism than others, and so what we should do as a country is we should create. We should basically engage in regime change against these um, tyrannical regimes that not only foment terror domestically but then export it against their rivals. So, so the the whole, you know, one of the main rationales, or at least you know, the rhetorical rationales for. Um, the way that Afghanistan and Iraq uh, were designed in the aftermath of their invasions by the United States was that they would uh, um, become democratic as soon as possible so as to reduce um, the tendency for terrorism to emerge within them. So this was a, a big policy conversation. It was almost completely Completely taken for granted in the mid 2000s that terrorism and democracy were correlated um, in a negative direction, and so what um, what happened is that I was looking at some articles that were written in the mid 90s by people like Len Weinberg um, and Bill Eubank, and this this funny exchange that took place between them and Todd Sandler, and the I think it's in Terrorism and Political Violence, where um, Weinbe- uh, Weinberg and Eubank argue that they they just do like a a, a quick correlation um, and like T-tests between incidents of terror and democratic regime type. And they said, hey, actually, you know, there's way more terrorist attacks in democracies than in non-democracies. And then um, Todd Sandler came out and said, well, this, this is probably a function of underreporting. It's probably a function of the fact that the data collected by RAND-MIPT or whoever um, doesn't actually count enough of the, the terrorist actions that go on in authoritarian regimes because they don't hit the media reports. And so um, the, the main data set that was in use at that time during their exchange was the Iterate data set, which Todd Sandler was involved in setting up and and, uh, keeping going at that time. And it covered transnational terrorism only. And so um, in the mid 2000s and late 2000s, the START consortium was able to get access to um, lots of different source materials um, covering terrorist attacks that were domestic and international. And so they set up the Global Terrorism Database, which covered um, which covered incidents from 1970 to 2004 that was the first release of the GTD and so we had access to these new data that would actually allow us in a way to test this claim on um, a, um, a much broader set of cases with the hope that we could use different statistical procedures and such to try to estimate the measurement error that would be a result of underreporting in and authoritarian regimes so ultimately um, the article, the, the dissertation that I wrote was on whether, whether democracy actually increases or decreases terrorism. I used a bunch of different measures, including the, the emergence of new terror groups or groups that started to use terrorism um, that year, um, as well as different terror attacks and fatalities because of terrorism. And uh, ultimately, I found a lot of support for this idea that actually terrorism is largely a democratic phenomenon. Um, and came up with some potential reasons why that might be the case, and drew on literature um, from the mid '90s, but also work by um, um, Kwan Lee. He wrote an interesting article in 2005, making this claim as well that civil liberties or executive um, constraints on the executive also increased terrorist attacks. So, um, so I, I used a lot of that to inform that study, and then. And then what happened is that in, in the late 2000s, after the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, um, something shifted to where um, basically after 2007, um, we have started to see a shift to where terrorism is actually now again more common in authoritarian regimes than in democracies. And so, um, so then, you know, it begs a, a new question, which I st- I started to allude to in the article Terrorism and Democracy that you referenced, which is trying to understand what is it that has um, changed after 2007 that might lead us into this new phase? Um, are we, have we really kind of concluded the fourth, the the, the third wave of terrorism, as David Rappaport would call it, and we're now firmly into the fourth wave, which is, Kind of a um, um, different animal on its own, um, or are we are we just kind of having a blip because this is mostly terrorist violence that is being coded as terrorist violence, but actually it's just you know civilian um, victimization in the context of ongoing civil wars. <laughs> um, so you know a lot of it also questions whether we're still studying the same phenomenon or whether we've gotten into some construct validity issues with how we define terrorism. So there's an awful lot um, that can be that can be interrogated further about the relationship between regime type uh, in general and and terrorism. I, I don't think that field is quite over yet.
0: No, I definitely don't think it is. So this is this was a really really fascinating article and it really it does raise a lot of questions as well and one of the things that that you mentioned in as an explanation for this is that terrorists around the world who weren't associated with al-qaeda and who weren't linked to to that form of transnational terrorism didn't want to be associated with this same category in a post 9-11 world as uh as islamic uh, terrorism aftermath of 9 11 you had statements coming out in the days afterwards which was basically fast forwarding the the peace process something that really rang true to me when i when i um read the read your piece and came to that that part of the of the article where did you see this happening anywhere else or or was it just something that you 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 thought was a possibility
1: yeah i think it was largely a possibility um i think it's not yet been fully tested there was an article that i cited there and now i can't remember who wrote it of course but um where they were saying that a lot of the um the sort of demobilization of uh, republican extremism in northern ireland was was largely a function um not largely but but part of the story there was just this um total total reframing and what it actually meant to be a terrorist and whether you would want to be associated with the new label, um, not just because of the um, the effects on one's legitimacy, uh, but also because of the incredibly, uh, in- incredibly coercive price that you might have to pay for it with an international community that was totally mobilizing now um, in concert against anybody that... Um, was still on a, a list um, as a terror organization, and so a lot of people didn't want to be on that list anymore, um, just because of the, the overwhelming international response. So that was an that was an argument that was made by somebody else, and that I referenced, I think, in my piece. Um, but I don't know the, whether that actually holds systematically across cases or not.
0: And towards the end of the article, as well, you you give give some really sound advice and um, to future researchers as well. And two of the bits really stood up, stood out for me. It said, you, you said to view terrorism as part of a larger repertoire of contention and to have a concerted effort to reconcile contradictory findings. How, would, how do you feel researchers should go about doing uh, both of these? I know that's a large question to ask, but uh, what, what way you could, would you recommend that, that, that those pieces of advice are taken on board?
1: Well, one of the things that I think is occurring more often now is that people don't take for granted that whatever measure they use um, to operationalize terrorism or whatever single data source they use to do that is adequate for making the case. If they're going to make a pretty bold claim, they're going to want to do some sensitivity analyses, mm. um, and they're going to want to use various different um, data sources. They're going to want to um, look at different indicators. So, for example, if you're measuring terrorist activity, don't just use um, the number of incidents, but also use the number of casualties and fatalities. Um, you also want to think about like, the, the different contextual impacts on things like casualties and fatalities. For example, if it's in a rural area where, there are, um, where, where there's very little access to uh, medical care or emergency medical care, it may be that fatalities are higher, but that doesn't mean the attack was worse. Um, it just means that um, people died who didn't need to die because they couldn't get access to um, medical care So I, I think there are lots of different ways that people can attend much more carefully um, especially in cross-national studies to the, the, the conditions in which people are being attacked and are um, engaging in terror violence and and trying to understand um, Uh, that the indicators that we use are quite blunt measures and we should be um, really attentive to to context Um, and sensitivity of our findings to different contexts and measures.
0: And this actually reminds me of when I was I was interviewing Laurie Dugan as well uh, just yesterday, uh, who's your co-author for the next piece of research we're going to talk about. But Laura obviously is heavily linked with uh, the Global Terrorism Database, which so many of uh, terrorism researchers, yourself included, use. And I asked her, well, what advice would you give people about using the GTD? And she said to have a respect for what the data actually is and to know uh, the ins and outs of the different iterations as well and similar to what you were saying don't just take this data for granted and don't just say okay this was the number of attacks that were there really to understand well what does this mean and might there be something affecting this data as well these data as well so it's uh, yeah it's it's a message that's ringing through Throughout the whole of uh, this podcast series, as well, it's a it's a respect for for your data, um, and and mm-hmm. that that does lead us through to to the final piece that you've put forward. It's uh, moving beyond deterrence, the effectiveness of raising the expected use, utility of abstaining from terrorism in Israel. A piece that you did uh, with Laura Dugan, published in twenty twelve. What was the background to this research, um, and what were your what did you find out? What did you find out here? That
1: research with Laura Dugan. Um, came in a sort of parallel way to the research I was doing with Maria Stefan because um, with Maria, the question was, you know, we're just studying different, the effectiveness of different violent tactics against other violent tactics. Why don't we look at how violent tactics compare to to non-violent tactics? And there was a really similar tendency in the counterterrorism literature at the time that was like, what's more effective, targeted killings, arrests, or, you know, blanket repression. (laughs) Mm. And it's sort of like, well, you know, that's, you're now comparing violence to other kinds of violence. I wonder what might happen if we compared things like negotiations, dialogues, communications, threats, like verbal threats, but without physical action. Um, I wonder what would happen if we looked at the whole range of potential responses to terrorism, rather than just whether, whether or not, Targeting killing works, for example, and look at the relative effectiveness of these different approaches. And so Laura and I um, engaged in the collection of the GATE data, which is the Government Actions and Terror Environments data. Um, that was, by the way, uh, a name um, and an acronym that was recommended to us by Will Moore, who oh. passed away in, in April, okay. um, and uh, who was also, a, a, you know, he had a, a major influence on on my thinking around the field as well, particularly around acronyms and data sets. He was, he was a real stickler for, <laughs> for kind of trying to come up with a good acronym. <laughs>
0: brilliant, brilliant.
1: Um, but anyway, so um, So we collected these data using automated machine coding, which, believe it or not, even in the late 2000s, was like kind of a major methodological innovation. It seems like every PhD student now knows how to do this, right? But yeah. but we um, it, we had to learn it. Um, and then once we learned it, we collected data on, Um, uh, We we used the pilot case of Israel, and we collected data on all of the different actions that the Israeli government had taken um, in response to um, um, Palestinian—well, actually toward Palestinians just in general, um, not just um, Hamas or um, al-Aqsa martyrs' brigades, but just— in terms of Palestinian-Israeli relations in general. And we looked at that from 1987 through 2004, I think, for that article. And ultimately, um, we, we segmented the data into, um, into different categories. And the ones that we used in that article were whether the measures were conciliatory or repressive, and whether they were verbal, nonverbal, um, or material, And then also whether they were discriminant or indiscriminate, meaning were they targeting um, particularly or singling out particularly groups that were suspected of terrorism, or were they just affecting Palestinians as a whole? So for example, um, with the discriminant or indiscriminate bit, um, if there was a negotiation, was the negotiation around freeing um, a Hamas operative from prison, which we would call discriminant, or was the negotiation around um, Palestinian self-determination? which we would call indiscriminate. So what we did is we collected all those data. There were about 10,000 observations of government actions during that time period. Um, And then we evaluated their effects on on violent incidents by Palestinian groups toward Israelis. And we ended up finding that um, the only type of method that the Israeli government had used that had reduced Palestinian um, violence toward Israelis was indiscriminate conciliation. So, meaning um, making progress toward um, uh, you know peace, basically in the peace process, as opposed to um, using repression either toward um, Palestinian um, uh, militant organizations or the population in general. And in fact, when repression was indiscriminate, meaning that um, the Israeli government used certain methods that affected. Um, the entire Palestinian population or, you know, um, civilians in the context of a raid or something like that, um, that that actually resulted in an increase in in, um, violence by Palestinians toward Israelis. So um, we thought that this was a pretty important story to tell. Again, it's counterintuitive because most people would say, you know, that the only way to respond to terrorism um, is through, like, overwhelming force. Um, and it turns out in this context, at least, that we didn't find empirical support for that.
0: And since doing the, this piece, um, have you have you utilized a similar methodology uh, looking at different cases and does it are the same results coming out?
1: Yeah, so we we did um, collect data on about 13 other cases and they're all kind of in various very, very stages of completion. Um, But at least in the case of Canada, which we published an article on last year, um, the finding does hold up that um, indiscriminate violence leads to an increase in terrorism. Um, And we didn't find as much about conciliation um, in the Canadian case, but we did find that, for example, engaging in in military activities in Afghanistan had resulted in an increase in al-Qaeda-inspired attacks um, against Canadian targets. Um, We have done... um, a few preliminary analyses of the sort of the same um, argument in Turkey and in um, Algeria, Lebanon, and Egypt, and we find support for the same trends that we discovered in Israel. Um, And then we also have some work and progress about the United States. Um, And the data set up there is slightly different from the way we set it up for the Israeli case, but ultimately... um, it is definitely a, a consistent finding um, that repression is not a particularly productive way of dealing with a terror organization over the long term. Uh, um, although that that can vary according to who's in power, but that that seems to be a a general takeaway.
0: And it does, as you said, it does really uh, fit through as being analogous to to what you were doing about the does a. Does civil resistance work? It's a uh, it's from from a from a different perspective, looking at the conciliatory versus the repressive. One of the things that really stood out to me, well, a number of things stood out to me in the article, but one of the it's a small, simple thing. But you spec- yourself and Laura specified that all codes were based on a Palestinian perspective. I okay. thought that was a really really neat decision to make and it's an obvious decision to make to me but why why was why was this uh, important to you to to really uh, to specify and to decide on huh?
1: well i think what our what our theory was it, it was trying to understand you know if you're if you're in a situation um where you're trying to decide whether using violence or not using violence is a good idea for you and um one of the primary determinants of that is how the government Um, it has responded or is anticipated to respond to you, um, then, you know, when we code the Israeli government actions, we have to code them from the perspective of those politics, which is, um, you know, like from a Palestinian perspective, would it be um, considered conciliatory um, for the Israeli government to, um, um, to build... Or you know, allow permits to build um, water wells from within the, the Palestinian territories, um, or would it be considered repressive? Um, and it's honestly that kind of depends on what time period you're talking about, in a sense. Because during the 1990s, that probably would have been viewed as an important, um, you know, indicator of the, their fidelity to self-determination. Today, it might be viewed as <laughs> as something a lot more um, sinister. So we, we really just tried to embed ourselves in what the the, the politics were at the time and um, and try to code the Israeli government behavior from the perspective of you know the people that the, the main dependent variable in that study was was violence by Palestinians toward Israelis. So we we wanted to to look at the politics from from their perspective.
0: It's it's an important and it's a it's a simple message to take on, but as I say, it's it's a vitally important message. Um, to to, uh, to look to to take from that article and um, the way like i've realized I've, I've taken up a lot of your time to go back to a debate that's been ongoing in terrorism research over the past few years and it's that question of whether you feel that this uh, it's about the health of terrorism research it's mark sageman's article about stagnation do you feel that there's a stagnation in terrorism research at the moment or do you do you go the other way and say it's in a healthy state or you're somewhere in the middle
1: um, you know, it's interesting. I think that I think that terrorism research is in a similar place as um civil war research was like in the late nineties, um, to where, you know, we have a whole bunch of new data sets um that have allowed people to really build out the quantitative um aspect of the research program. Um and what i think happened then is that there was kind of a division within the field between empirical terrorism studies and critical terrorism studies and i think that that is actually a really important um and underused division uh, because i think that in lots of the different articles that have been written in dialogue between empirical terrorism studies and critical terrorism studies. Um, you know, people say we we often find that we have more in common. Like there are results that empirical terrorism studies um, researchers have discovered that absolutely fit within the sort of broader mandate of emancipation and um, and you know sort of linking research to practice and and, um, you know, kind of stepping away from a state-centric bias and focusing more on um, human rights. And, and I think that that has actually started to happen, but it's underappreciated, and there could be a great deal more dialogue between those two parts of the field um, to really bring out what the consensus insights are um, emerging across both of those areas. I also think there's a bit of a division between those that are more interested in kind of policy um, work and those that are interested in um, in the scholarship for its own sake. And that, um, that division, I think, is a little more difficult because it's much more obstinate when it comes to trying to back away the state-centric bias that the Critical Terrorism Studies Research Program has been pointing out. And um, because of that, I, that's another reason why I think the empirical terrorism studies and the critical terrorism studies groups are kind of closer together than than it might seem on the outside, because um, both of them are a bit maybe more skeptical or cynical about the direct policy implications, or at least they think very clearly about the moral and ethical responsibilities um, of, you know, making a certain empirical claim, which, you know, I think is less common in the policy world, or with with, with research that's purely oriented toward um, affecting policy directly. So I think that in terms of the stagnation in the field, I think I, I think we have less stagnation, but I think we have more fragmentation than is necessary. And that um, an important way forward for us will be to really kind of convene these different groups and talk about like what are what are we actually saying as a field? Like after all of this time, um, uh, you know, twenty years almost of of sustained you know resourcing and and a huge explosion of, of work in this area with lots of now different silos and different schools of thought. Like what's the collective story? What can we actually say as a community of researchers and people that want to affect the world in a positive way um, that has emerged out of this? And I, I think we actually probably do have things we can say, um, but the field is too fragmented for us to kind of all be in the same room at the same time and, and come to some consensus
0: yeah and it's 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 an important thing to point out the this fragmentation at the moment um and hopefully throughout this podcast series we'll be getting people from from different different factions within this fragmentation for example we're going to have richard jackson in a future in a future episode who'd be uh, very much housed within critical terrorism studies we have people from the policy world. we have people from um from the empirical uh, side of things so hopefully uh our listeners can get a, an understanding of where where different people stand, where different researchers stand in in this fragmentation. But Erica, it's been it's been a pleasure talking to you about your research and the research that influenced you um, over this past hour or so. Um, for anyone who's interested in reading more in depth about the research which was mentioned in today's podcast they're all up on our website uh, uel.ac.uk slash c. you'll be able to you'll be able to click on the links to each of the articles both uh, erica's own work and that research that inspired her as well uh, so just uh, leaves me to to thank uh, professor Erica Chenoweth for today's uh, interview and also to thank Jamie Murray for editing uh, this this week's podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and we'll uh, hopefully see you all next week. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Erica Chenoweth. Be sure to tune in next week or download next week's episode where I'll be talking to Javier Argomenes. In that discussion, I'll actually be talking to him about how the research of Maria Stefan and Erika Chenowitz, Why Civil Resistance Works, has influenced his career, as well as the work of Martha Crenshaw and John Horgan. And then we'll be focusing on his own research, his own research that looks at uh, the case of ETA, examining deterrence and backlash effects in CT, looking at the role that Spanish victims of terrorism can play in development of counter narratives and post 9-11 institutionalization of European Union counter-terrorism. I hope you'll be able to join us for that episode and listen into it and until then goodbye.